0: Good morning, Christ Prez. All over the world today, from the streets of South America, to the living rooms of China, to the prisons of Iran, to the cathedrals of Europe, brothers and sisters from every tribe and tongue and nation are proclaiming together, Christ is risen. Today is the fulcrum of our faith, the hinge on which everything turns. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. As a church, since mid-January, we've been going through the book of Mark. We've called this study the way of Jesus, referring to the way Jesus himself takes to save us, but also the way on which he calls us to follow him. On Friday, we heard the story of Jesus' betrayal, trial, suffering, and death. But today, in the final chapter of Mark's gospel, everything changes, everything turns. Listen as I read. Mark chapter 16 verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices, so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Not long after Libby and I moved to Richmond, we moved into a little house on South Meadow Street. Emphasis on little, very tiny. (laughs) Within the kitchen uh, was an efficiency washer and dryer and whenever it would run it would shake the entire house when we first started living there this was a major disruption we'd be going about our business and then whatever cycle it was would kick on and the whole house would just begin to tremble but you know what it wasn't long after moving into the house that we stopped noticing the washer and dryer the thumping and shaking just blended into the background Well, in 2011, the week before our youngest son, Judah, was born, my parents were in town, and the whole house began to shake. My mom asked, is that an earthquake? I said, is what an earthquake? she said, Kevin, the whole house is shaking. I said, oh, that's just our washer. Well, it actually was an earthquake. It shook our neighborhood so hard that a huge oak tree fell on a house next to ours. I barely even noticed. 2,000 years ago, there was a world-shaking event so powerful that it rocked everyone who heard it. Jesus, the one who was crucified, is no longer dead. He is risen from the grave. This was a world-rattling proclamation, so bracing that it literally changed the world at the time. The Christian movement exploded and, and within 20 years had taken over the Roman Empire. It eventually became the largest religious movement on the planet. The message of the resurrection changed the world. But here's the problem. After 2,000 years of Easter celebrations, after hearing the message that Jesus has risen over and over, after filling up this day with so many trivialities like bunnies and eggs and marshmallow peeps, we can barely hear the message. We've acclimated, we've grown numb to it. The whole world is shaking. We say, is what an earthquake? So, here's a question for us as we look at this story this morning. How do you know if you're really hearing the message of Easter? And not just hearing it, but really receiving it, really being shaped by it, really being shaken by it. Let me highlight three signs our passage gives us. First, if you're really hearing this, if you're really being shaken by it, your mind is challenged. Second, your heart is comforted. And then third, your life is changed. so first your your mind is challenged. Jesus died on Friday afternoon and they placed him in the grave soon after but because the Sabbath started on Friday at sunset they didn't have time to prepare his body. It was forbidden by Jewish law to do this on the Sabbath. So chapter 16 verse 1 picks up after they had waited until the Sabbath was over. Early in the morning maybe around 6 a.m these three women headed to Jesus' grave. Let's be clear about why they were going to the tomb, not to celebrate Easter, not to be the first witnesses to the resurrection. No, they were going to anoint Jesus' dead body. Like, they weren't just bringing the spices along in case Jesus was still dead. They fully expected Jesus to still be dead. Even when they heard the news that Jesus had risen, even then they were confused and bewildered and afraid. The male disciples had the same reaction. We learn in the other Gospels that they thought the women were delusional. None of them could get their minds around this. They could not believe that this was true. Why? Well, here's why. Because in the first century, dead people stayed dead. I'm not an expert on the ancient world, but I can say with total certainty that dead people were just as unlikely to rise from the dead in the first century as they are in the 21st. Sometimes people say, well, we're reading an ancient document, and back then people were gullible and superstitious. They believed in miracles and mysteries and resurrections, but today we're people of logic and reason and science. We know how things actually work in the world. Family, it's so important to see that none of the early disciples just uncritically embraced the reality of the resurrection. But the events of that first Easter morning set their minds blazing and then eventually they all had encounters with the risen Jesus. It's like the gospel writers are reaching to us across history saying, look, we were just as doubtful, just as skeptical, just as unwilling to accept the idea that a man could just get up and walk out of the grave, but against everything we thought or imagined or expected, it happened. Jesus Christ is risen. N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, the only reasonable explanation for how a group of skeptical, unsuspecting, demoralized, and terrified group of people could have been transformed overnight into a powerful movement that went willingly to their deaths and changed the course of Western civilization is that the resurrection actually happened. So here's the first point Can you let this blow your mind? If you have a hard time believing in the reality of the resurrection, see, you're in good company. You're right there with the first disciples. They were not a bunch of naive, uncritical people who desperately wanted Jesus to be alive. No, they were highly skeptical, deeply disillusioned, and only gradually convinced of the truth. And so wrestle with this. Consider the claim, Christ is risen, You know, countless people, because of their belief in the reality of the resurrection, have taken on pain and sacrifice. They've walked into torture. They've given away everything. They've moved across oceans and mountains and rivers. They've abandoned life and limb. All because they believe that this man, Jesus, walked out of the tomb. So here's the first sign that you're really feeling the earthquake of Easter. Your mind is challenged. Your mind is blown here's another sign. Your heart is comforted. In what ways? Well, (laughs) countless ways, but I'll highlight just two. First, uh, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. As we've gone through Mark's gospel, we've seen that the disciples have not exactly been exemplars of faithfulness. If you've been with us on Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, we've remembered that in his last days when Jesus needed them most, Um, one disciple betrayed him, another denied him, and all the rest abandoned him. And we might wonder, what does God do when we betray him and deny him, mock him and curse him, nail him to a cross? When we do this to God, are we glad when he comes back? Or do we run for our lives? Look again at verse 7 of our passage. All the disciples had abandoned Jesus, and the messenger could have said something like this, go tell those cowards that Jesus wants nothing to do with them. Tell them he's starting over. Tell them they really blew it and he's moving on. Or, the messenger might have said, tell them to run and hide because Jesus is back and he's out for payback. But that's not what the messenger says. He says, go tell the disciples and Peter, Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. What does God do when we betray, deny, and abandon him? He forgives. Family, do you see this? Do you see the grace of it? There's no grudge, there's no rebuke. This is not the message of an angry deity out for payback. I mean, Jesus has forgiven the disciples before they've even repented. And I love that he singles out Peter. See, why does he do that? Just a chapter earlier, Peter was the one denying and cursing Jesus. And so you can imagine all the disciples are gathered together. And the women come in with the message that Jesus wants to meet up with the disciples in Galilee. And and you can imagine Peter saying, That can't mean me. Not after what I did. But then the women say, No, Peter. the message from jesus specifically said you see family this is a comfort for your heart the world says that if you screw up too badly there is no hope for you if you fail too often there's no forgiveness but look at peter he fell the furthest and jesus seeks him out to restore him peter becomes one of the greatest leaders of the early church see the resurrection tells us that God is not holding our sin against us. Let this comfort your heart. You are forgiven. Here's a second comfort. There is nothing to fear. Now that might sound like a crazy thing to say in light of the past 2 years which have been full of fears. We've been afraid of a virus and vaccines. We've been afraid of this political party or that one. We've been afraid of police and protesters. We've been afraid that nothing will ever change or we've been afraid that everything's changing too quickly. Some of our fears have been so intensely personal. We've been afraid that fractured relationships will never be mended. We've been afraid we won't be able to forgive or that we won't ever be forgiven. We've been afraid our communities won't be safe places for our children. We've been afraid of sickness and pain, that they'll have their ways with our bodies. We've been afraid that past failures will haunt us forever. We've been afraid that our work will in the end prove meaningless. We've been afraid that depression and addiction will prove too powerful to overcome so many fears. The women go to the tomb fully expecting to find a corpse. My old teacher, Jim Edwards, puts it like this. The women intent on their funeral errand are preoccupied with death. They endeavor with their spices and anxieties to bring some kind of closure, however inadequate, to a tragic drama. Close quote. See, even though Jesus had told them and the other disciples plainly that he would be raised from the dead, they weren't expecting it. They aren't up early in eager anticipation of encountering their risen Lord. They're preoccupied with death. And family, I wonder if our fears in one way or another don't just boil down to a preoccupation with death. We live in fear because deep down, we're pretty sure that death will have the last word. The cancer will return. The addiction will persist. The relationship will continue to unravel. Our children will make horrible mistakes. Our bodies will continue to fall apart. The depression will continue to torment. We think that the end will be a sad trip to the tomb. When the women arrive at the tomb, they find the stone rolled away and they find a young man dressed in white. Mark tells us they were alarmed. The Greek word communicates profound fear and distress. The messenger tells them, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Over and over again, this is the message of the New Testament don't be afraid. It's like the New Testament knows about a reality that we fail to grasp or that we forget or that we forget in the day-to-day trenches of our hardships and suffering. What is it? Christ is risen. Family, will you let the earthquake of Easter shake you awake? Death does not have the final word. The messenger says to the women, you're looking for Jesus, but you're looking in the wrong place. You're still consumed with death, but this crucified one is consumed with life. He has been raised. It's not that in some abstract way, good is going to triumph over evil. This isn't an invitation to have some kind of spiritual experience that will make the suffering and death of this world seem not so bad. The claim is not that death isn't so bad. The claim is that death Isn't so final. Jesus, the one who was crucified, is risen. He lives. You see, family, the way of Jesus does include death, but it also includes the defeat of death. This is the way of Jesus death and resurrection. And so you have nothing to fear, not really. Not God. He forgives you, not death, it's defeated. I wonder this morning, what internal burden are you carrying? Are you racked with anxiety? Are you riddled with fears? Tortured by regret, burdened with shame? Are you looking into your future and filled with hopelessness? See, these are terrible, burdening dispositions of the heart, And Jesus Christ is risen to set you free. The the resurrection means the end of guilt. You're forgiven. The end of shame. You are seen and you are loved. The end of fear. Nothing you love can ever be truly lost. The end of regret. Even the, the worst mistakes, the deepest failures can be redeemed. It's the end of your hopelessness. In the end, all will be well. Everything really will be okay. So this is a second sign that you are being shaken by the earthquake of Easter. Your heart is comforted. Will you let this comfort your heart? Here's the third sign. Your life is changed. The messenger says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And then the angel gives the women something to do. (laughs) Go. What we learn in this commissioning of the women is that the risen Jesus is going to be doing the same thing that he was doing before he died. He's going to be leading a group of disciples on mission, healing, serving, giving, welcoming, loving. How do you know if the earthquake of Easter is changing you? Um, Your life changes, your agenda changes, your life's purpose shifts. You're no longer just trying to make some money, raise good kids, pursue the American dream and retire well. Instead, the risen Jesus um, shifts the whole course of your life so that now your focus is aligned with his. Now you want to be part of what God is up to in the world. And what is he up to? (laughs) sometimes we think that all God cares about is spiritual stuff, churchy stuff, saving souls for heaven, maybe. But no, family, God's mission is as deep and wide as God's love for the world. The resurrection means that God loves this world and that God's goal is to redeem and renew this world. Here's how Esau Macaulay put it recently. He he writes, it's common even in Christian circles to think of the afterlife as a disembodied bliss in a paradise filled with naked baby angels tickling the strings of harps as our souls bounce from cloud to cloud. But Christianity has never taught a disembodied future in heaven. Our beliefs are more radical. We believe that one day the entire created world will be transformed to become what God always intended it to be, free of pain and death and sorrow. It will be an earth that still contains some of the things of this life, food, art, mountains, lakes, beaches, and culture. There will be hip-hop, spirituals, soul music, and grits, with cheese, salt, and pepper, not sugar, in the renewed creation. Christians believe that our bodies will be resurrected from the dead to live in this transformed earth. Like the earth itself, these bodies will be transfigured and perfected, but they will still be our bodies. See the resurrection family doesn't narrow our concern it broadens it it bursts it wide open god's mission is so big i mean god cares about the entirety of his creation and so to god the whole person matters including our bodies and we're called now to work for the healing of this world's brokenness wherever we find it i wonder how is god inviting you into his big work How is God inviting you into this? And I wonder how you'll respond to that invitation. You do have a choice to make. You can take up the call or you can resist it. You can go or you can run away. Look again at verse eight. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's where our earliest, most reliable versions of Mark's gospel end. Verses 9 through 20 that you find in your Bible are a later edition. It's possible that Mark originally ended his gospel with verse 8. It's also possible that Mark's original ending was lost. But either way, verse 8 is kind of unsettling. The messengers tell the women not to be afraid, but they are afraid. He tells them to go and share the good news, but instead they flee and they tell no one. What about us? What will we do with the message of the resurrection? Will we join in God's mission or will we let fear and uncertainty paralyze us? This story is our story. How will our part of it be written? Well... The world is shaking with the good news of the resurrection, but is the good news shaking you? Is your mind challenged? Is your heart comforted? Is your life changed? You know, I think maybe these women didn't move out on mission at this point because all they've seen is the empty tomb. And what they need is a person. They need the risen Jesus. In the end, arguments about the historicity of the resurrection, they don't produce faith. Jesus does. An empty tomb doesn't create community. Jesus does. An empty tomb doesn't change our lives. Jesus does. And he's here. Um, He's with you. May you encounter him today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.